Let's now open up our Bibles once again to Daniel chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 31. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Daniel speaking, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And this was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May God bless that reading as well as the proclamation of his word based on this passage of scripture. Following the proclamation of God's word, we'll respond by singing together stanzas three and four of Psalm 2. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever woken up in the middle of the night after a particularly vivid dream and thought to yourself, I really need to tell somebody about this in the morning? 
You go back to sleep, and then sometime later you wake up, and you just have this fuzzy kind of image left over from that dream that you had. That dream is gone, never to be recovered. Now, at night when we're asleep, our brains are hard at work. They're processing the events of the day. They're dealing with the stresses of life, with the things that we're preoccupied with, with our thoughts about what's going to happen in the future. Now, we may have nightmares or we may have pleasant dreams. We may have dreams that recur, that come back again and again, or themes that keep on coming back. Now, this is what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. And when you're the most powerful man in the world, when you are the epitome of power and majesty, the man in whom all of the might of the universe is focused, and when mysticism and religion and political power are all combined in your person, then this is not something that you just let go without dealing with it. Nebuchadnezzar was in a position that was almost divine in his empire. And he thought of himself in these terms. But his reaction to his dream shows that that divine status did nothing to improve his state of mind. Because his dream made him anxious. And as a pagan idolater, there was nothing that he could really do to deal with that anxiety. It seems that not only did he not understand the meaning of the dream, the fact is he actually couldn't even remember what the dream was. And that only made him more anxious. He may have had more power, may have had more, been given more authority than any other human being in history up to that point. But the dreams that God sent him showed him that when it comes right down to it, he ultimately had just as little authority, he was actually just as unable to control anything as the poorest peasant in his empire. But while he... He had no authority, really. He did have power. And it's important for us to know that those two things are different, authority and power. He was still the man in charge. And when he told people to jump, they said, how high? And so he exercised that power by calling together the enchanters, the magicians, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, all of those men that served him to do the job that he had paid them to do, that he was paying them to do. Normally, it seems that they were asked to interpret dreams, and dreams were believed to be messages from beyond, from the spirit world. But in order to do that, or at the very least, in order to appear to do that, these experts, highly trained, needed to have something to go on. They needed to have the content of the dream. And so from that starting point, they could make up whatever interpretation suited them, suited their purposes, or, or, or whatever interpretation would please their master. But to tell the one who had had the dream what the dream was in the first place, now that was going above and beyond the call of duty. To do that would require much more than enchanter's tricks or, or the kind of technique, kinds of techniques that modern psychics use uh, to tell fortunes. And the state magicians knew that. Verses 10 and 11, we read, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So there's a conversation, there's some back and forth, after which the king's anxiety turns to anger. And that anger would be shown in in a display of power. 
Nebuchadnezzar had the power over the lives of these men, and they would feel his wrath. And so that's where Daniel enters the picture. He's fresh out of his training. He's still a young man. And he shows his wisdom by speaking to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. And he, the captain of the king's guard was preparing to enforce that edict. And we should take note of Daniel's motivation for doing this. It wasn't because of any special compassion that he felt for the false prophets and the diviners of the Babylonian Empire. No, he knew that Nebuchadnezzar's death sentence included him and his three companions. Because the pagan sorcerer's failure could lead to the death of the true prophets of the true God. And so Daniel had to intervene to ensure that God's purposes for him and for his three friends and thereby for the nation, for the covenant people of God, would be fulfilled. And Daniel understood what the magicians understood. But his understanding went a whole lot deeper than theirs did. He knew that no magic tricks, no psychic techniques could possibly do what Nebuchadnezzar was demanding. But he also knew that this wasn't the, do the domain of some unnamed and unknown or unknowable gods, the forces of nature, the invisible powers that remain separate from the world. No, this was something that could only be done by the God of heaven, the one true God, the creator. And so Daniel and his friends prayed. They sought mercy from the Lord, the God of heaven that they knew, the God of heaven who knew them and who had called them. And the Lord heard their prayer and, and revealed Nebuchadnezzar's dream and its meaning to Daniel in a vision. And in Daniel's thanksgiving prayer, we get a foretaste of its interpretation, of the interpretation of that dream. Because first of all, Daniel lists and praises God for his attributes of wisdom and might. And he proclaims the greatness of the God who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and sets up kings. He praises the God who is in control of history, who's in control also of revealing his purposes in history. The foolishness of unbelievers, those who reject the God of heaven or even who put themselves in the place of the God of heaven, means that they can't even receive God's revelation of his purposes, let alone understand it correctly, let alone accept it. In order to do that, God needed to reveal himself. And he did that through Daniel. And so Daniel goes back to Arioch and he tells him he's got the answer for Nebuchadnezzar. And when Daniel finally speaks to Nebuchadnezzar, he makes it very clear. Pagan magic, pagan wisdom, pagan enchantment, and pagan astrology were all completely useless. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And those mysteries were being revealed in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so what Daniel does is to take the focus off of himself and, and redirect it towards the Lord. And that's when Nebuchadnezzar finally gets to hear about this mysterious dream and its meaning. And that dream, it starts out well enough, as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned at least. After lying in bed worrying about the future, about what would happen to his empire, about what tomorrow held, he had had a dream in which the God of heaven had actually revealed that future to him. 
And so he had this vision that we heard and that we read in Daniel 2, the vision of that great man, an overwhelming image, mighty and of exceeding brightness. It was a statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron and feet made up of a mixture of iron and clay. Now the good part, as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, was that he was that golden head. And Daniel's description of Nebuchadnezzar doesn't skimp on the superlatives because Nebuchadnezzar had indeed reached the pinnacle of human greatness. He was the king of kings. He had the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory. The children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, Nebuchadnezzar ruled over them all. So he was in control and he was in fact remaking the world. He was creating a new order. He was building a new Tower of Babel. He was building a united power that would govern the whole world. And in that order, that new order that he was creating, the God of heaven was being excluded. And so in the place of the God of heaven stood Nebuchadnezzar. And as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, it was so far so good. But Daniel's description of Nebuchadnezzar makes it clear that he had reached that point, that highest possible position that a man can find himself in. He had reached that point not because of his own innate greatness. It was the God of heaven who had given him the kingdom, who had given him the power, who had given him the might, and who had given him the glory. It was the God of heaven who made him rule over the beasts of the, heaven, uh, the, beasts of the earth and the birds of the heavens and the people of the earth. And it was also the God of heaven who would bring down his empire and pass that empire on to another. Now that must have been a blow for Nebuchadnezzar's glorious self-image when he heard that the chest and arms of silver represented another kingdom, another new world government that would take the place of Babylon. And it would be an inferior kingdom at that. Now that kingdom would be the Persian kingdom. And that kingdom would take Babylon's place on the world stage. But, but that kingdom would also fall in its own time. And it would fall to a third kingdom represented by the middle and the thighs of bronze. The Macedonian or the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. And Alexander, if you know anything about Alexander the Great, you know that he was another empire builder caught up in his own greatness it only took him 18 years of empire building to become convinced in himself that he was something more than merely human because when he died and ironically he died in babylon in the palace in babylon and he died at the age of 32 he had all he had become to believe that he was the son of the greek god zeus but Alexander, just like all of the others that had come before him, he would be replaced. His time as ruler of the world would be very brief. And the next empire to return uh, or, or to appear would, would be the Roman Empire. And that empire would be strong, but it would be brittle. And it would ultimately be shattered as well. That iron that it was made of, it was strong enough to crush and to break whatever resistance it would encounter but even though the legs were made out of iron, the feet were made of a mixture of iron 
and clay, and those are two materials that don't stick together very well. And so this would be just one more empire. And it had strength, but it had no staying power. So that mighty statue had feet of clay. That's where we get that expression from. The head was gold. The head was very impressive. But this succession of empires that in the grander scheme of things are just various stages in a single project, these empires would not stand. And that project which began at Babel on the plain of Shinar, and you may remember from Daniel chapter 1, the mention of the plain of Shinar, and that's meant to draw our minds back to the Tower of Babel. That project sought to build a united world without God. That project was based in fear, a fear of being scattered, a fear of being divided. It was based in pride, that foolish human thought that the world can be remade, that its problems can be solved, that a lasting empire can be built apart from God. But in the end, these four empires, some of the greatest empires in history, would be shattered. And so the words of Psalm 2 that we're singing together this afternoon would begin to be fulfilled in the time of those kings. Verse 2 of Psalm 2, The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. But in verse 4 it says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. Because a fifth kingdom would arise. And that kingdom would begin to rise, not just at the end of the story, not just in, that, in the midst of that empire of iron mixed with clay, but it would be growing there on the sidelines, unnoticed by the great powers, insignificant in the eyes of the world, from the time of Nebuchadnezzar, through the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia, through that meteoric rise and, and equally rapid fall of Alexander the Great. But then finally... The great king would come and he would begin to usher in the coming of his kingdom in the time of the Caesars of Rome. And then the words of Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9 would be fulfilled. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now this is the kingdom that the Lord Jesus spoke about in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, where he said, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. That is the kingdom. And the word gospel, that word that's so familiar to us, it has this context. In the Roman Empire, men called heralds, heralds of the gospel, they would announce the good news, the evangel. And that good news in Rome was a new king has been born, or a new king has taken the throne. This was the secular gospel of the Roman Empire. But when Jesus began his earthly ministry... As we read in the Gospels, Jesus came into Galilee 
proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the great king had arrived. These empires would rise and the empires would fall. The dreams of men would appear to become a reality, but then those dreams would inevitably be shattered when the object of their dreams, that united world kingdom under their authority, without God, collapsed and fell. But that fifth kingdom, a stone cut out of the mountainside by no human hand, would pulverize those feet of clay and the whole statue. Broken in pieces like that potter's vessel of Psalm 2. They would become like the chaff of Psalm 1, which we also sang together, blown away by the wind so that not a trace of them would ever be found. But as for that stone, as for that fifth kingdom, that fifth kingdom was going to be different than all of the other kingdoms that had come before. It would become a great mountain and it would fill the whole earth. And brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God can do that unlike any earthly kingdom because it is a kingdom that is built in harmony with God and not in enmity with God. It's a kingdom built on the reconciliation between God and man. The reconciliation that was won by the king himself, by the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect sacrifice. The stone that the builders had rejected became the head of the corner. That uncut stone, like the stones of the altars in the Old Testament, that pointed forward to him, to the Lord Jesus, he became the basis, he became the foundation stone of a kingdom that shall not be moved, a kingdom that will succeed where all of the others have failed, a kingdom in which the true God is worshipped instead of the idols and false god kings of human history, a kingdom in which all of creation and the nature of human life is understood correctly because it bases itself on God's perfect revelation of himself and not on any human philosophy. Now that is the reality of history. It's planned by God, it's directed by God, and its reality is revealed by God. Try as men might, no human plan will ever overcome it. That fourth king, or that fourth kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar's vision was crushed, along with all of the rest, by that perfect fifth kingdom. But as the kingdom of God continues to advance throughout history, the kingdom of man continues to struggle right along with it, struggle against it setting up its false messiahs, setting up its false saviors, its counterfeits in place of the genuine article, the one true Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the apostle John said, It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, many people think of the Antichrist as a figure who will come sometime in the future, the end of times. But John makes it clear, many Antichrists have already come. And those Antichrists, who are they? Those Antichrists are people 
They are kings and emperors and dictators or empires of whatever type. Empires and emperors who put themselves in the place of Christ. Anti-Christ, in the place of Christ. False messiahs who promise salvation, who may even have the delusion within themselves that they can provide salvation, like Alexander the Great, or like one of the Roman Caesars who declared himself to be a son of the gods. And we can see how this has continued to happen all throughout history. So many failed attempts to implement the glorious dreams, dreams like the dreams of the Third Reich in Germany, the Soviet Union, failed attempts at uniting the world in one purpose, in perfect harmony, in organizations like the United Nations which proclaims that it can bring peace to the world, but peace without God. Financial empires and business empires that want to create worldwide systems in which everyone lives and works together in harmony to achieve a purpose that completely, absolutely disregards the God of heaven. The world likes to think that we have advanced, we have, we have moved, gone forward, upward so much as people of the 21st century. But while the magicians and the diviners and the astrologers and the Chaldeans of the 21st century have different titles and a different education than the experts of Nebuchadnezzar's day, the human heart has not changed. Rebellious men separated from God, living in animosity toward God, will continue to try to do the impossible as long as sin is a reality in this life. But while human beings struggle to achieve these ends, here we are, citizens of the fifth kingdom. This kingdom of which we are citizens. This kingdom is not of this world, Jesus said. And it's important for us to understand what Jesus meant. That that doesn't mean that this kingdom has nothing to do with this world. It doesn't mean that this kingdom is strictly a, a spiritual matter that can be separated from the physical, earthly realities of this life. It means that its origins are not of this world. It is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of heaven. It's from heaven that it comes. And brothers and sisters, it's to this kingdom that we owe our primary allegiance. It is in this kingdom that we have our citizenship. Daniel wrote to encourage God's people of his own time, those who lived in exile in Babylon, those who would return to the promised land and experience the small beginnings of the restoration of God's people. Many of the faithful may have considered the reality of the world, the fact that God's people were not where they should be, that they were small and insignificant and oppressed, that they were really a pathetic little group in comparison with the great and glorious empires of their day. And they may have been tempted to despair. Or they may have even been tempted to abandon the cause of the fifth kingdom and join forces with these empires that seemed to have it all, that seemed to be so successful. And those were the first readers of Daniel, but Daniel, the Holy Spirit, also inspired Daniel to write this book for us. Because we, li- we need encouragement, and that kind of encouragement, just as much as the people of Daniel's day 
needed that encouragement. We live in turbulent times. We look around us and we see where the power in the world appears to be, where things appear to be headed. The plans of the supposed best and brightest in this world, the wealthy, the powerful, the influential, the organizations of this world that seem to have the dominion. We may be tempted in the same way. But for us today in the 21st century, Daniel's message remains relevant and remains powerful. Because it means, first of all, that we don't have to worry that any earthly empire will ultimately succeed. These human delusions are bound to fail. The kingdoms of men will be crushed and blown away, never to be seen again. While the kingdom of God is going to fill the earth like that stone rolling down the mountainside, becoming bigger and bigger until it becomes a great and glorious mountain. And in the second place, we should never be tempted to join forces with these earthly powers. We should never have the mistaken idea that their ideologies, that their techniques, that their worldviews could somehow be more successful than those of the church, which seems to just putter along in its weakness, in its fragility. And finally, this glorious picture of that stone should give us confidence as we go forward. Proclaiming the true gospel in a world that's filled with counterfeits. Proclaiming the reign of the true king in a world that's filled with pretenders. Proclaiming our faith in the sovereignty of the true God and not in some false human sovereign. We can move forward boldly. We can proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We can proclaim what we confess, that His kingdom shall have no end. And So let us rejoice, brothers and sisters, because the Lord is King, and He has graciously called us to be citizens of His kingdom. Let's strive to be faithful citizens in this outpost of the kingdom of God, confidently and unashamedly submitting ourselves to the reign of the great king so that all the world will be led to roundly reject the false messiahs of this world and kiss the sun. Amen.